0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 430. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give a shout out and thanks for putting up a five star review of the show to Mal Foxley on Apple Podcasts. This week's interview is with my friend Carla Johnson. Carla is a world renowned storyteller, an entertaining speaker and a prolific author. Having lived, worked and keynoted on five continents, Carla's partnered with top brands and conferences to train thousands of people on how to rethink the work that they do and the impact they can have. In this conversation with Carla, we discuss her latest book, Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. We look at creativity versus innovation, the power of our observation, and connecting dots, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on Minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Carla. Awesome. Carla, great to have you back on the show. Um, It was three years uh, ago I had you on, and uh, lots of things have happened in between, eh? So what about, in your own words, describing who you are to those who don't know you?
1: I've, uh, for people who don't know me, I feel I have spent my entire career motivating people to rethink the work that they do and the impact that they can have. <clears throat> Primarily, that's been through marketing, but these last five years, it's also shifted into innovation and how we come up with ideas and how we make those a reality in the companies and organizations we work for.
0: So innovation is a a wacky, huge topic and a little bit like me having just written a book on leadership. One of the first questions people say is, oh, Minter, not another book on leadership. How and why did you have the inspiration to write Think Innovation, your new book, Re-Think Innovation?
1: You know, one of the things that I've had happen to me, especially in, in the last five years after Robert Rose and I wrote the book experiences the seventh year of marketing about how to create story driven experiences is that people would say i love all this i think it's great but the thing i still struggle with is how to come up with ideas how do i do something that's actually different unique stands out and doesn't feel just like a a copycat of somebody else's or you know really is um, something that moves the needle compared to what we've done before so people pay attention And I always found that such an odd thing to ask, because I think you and I are very similar in that we never have a shortage of ideas and things that we want to do. And in what I realized is that the natural thought process that people like you and I go through isn't something that everybody understands or, you know, has at their beck and call just when they need it. And so the purpose of the book and, and why I researched and wrote it is because I wanted to answer this one question is the ability to consistently come up with great ideas that have an impact something that can be learned and the answer is yes and you know that's that's why we have this book but the whole i think one of the big cliches of the word innovation is that it has to be expensive it has to be complicated it has to be time consuming and really what i found out in interviewing these hundreds of innovators is they all follow a really simple five-step process to come up with great ideas, most of the time on demand, under pressure, you know, without the, the luxury of, of you know, sitting on a mountaintop and ideating, that really does have a big impact. And they follow this process, they just don't realize it. And so that's what I do in this book, is take this process that they all follow, explain it, break it down in great detail, And it's now something that anybody can learn how to do. And what it actually does mentor is take us back to how we naturally thought as a child.
2: Hmm.
0: The idea that why daddy does such and such a thing exist or, or what's this mom?
1: Exactly, because those questions that kids are asking is in their mind they're wanting context for how to connect the dots about why things work and you know one of the most famous quotes i think on innovation or creativity is is Steve Jobs about you know if you ask great people how they come up with the idea and they say well you know i don't know it just it just happened but you look in hindsight and it was about connecting the dots and connecting the dots is something that kids do so naturally and that's why they ask so many why questions is because they're not old enough yeah, you know their little brains haven't formed enough to be able to connect those dots naturally, and so they're wanting help from people who they assume are dot connectors and can give them context. And when they start to ask these questions and and we shut them down, what we're actually doing is teaching that natural ability to connect dots and come up with ideas out of them. You know, we're teaching it out of them. We go into educational system. That also, you know, su- supports the non-questioner because it's hard to um, teach and, you know, herd a-, a whole classroom full of students that are constantly asking why. And then we go into university, that's, you know, much more structured. And you're the student, I'm the teacher, and it's more one-way communication. And then we get into the corporate environment, and often what's rewarded there is conformity, not inquisition.
0: Yeah, safety first, almost
1: exactly. Exactly, safety and efficiency.
0: So, uh, I I just um, had a fun conversation with my wife about small talk, and some people seem to have a knack for small talk, and and she was saying, "Well, I don't have that." And I said, "Well, can't you learn it?" And I I wondered about that. I still wonder about that. So, but going to the point of innovation for the people who have a knack for innovation in air quotation marks you've made it more explicit, this formula. The one thing which I still find hard to teach, if you will, or formulaically understand is how to connect dots. You know, just putting on a, a child's mind isn't enough to tell an adult working in a large corporate, hey, listen, dude, or do that." you need <laughs> to connect some more dots. What What would you say would be ways to hack that idea to get to you know, somehow formulaically or process-wise get better at connecting dots.
1: And that's actually the five-step process that I break down in my book. I call it the perpetual innovation process. And one of the things that helps people who aren't used to or don't remember how to naturally connect the dots like they did as kids is to start out with an objective. Like, let's let's point those dot connections and everything that we're going to do A specific outcome that we're looking for. And and I, I tell people that, and then I set it aside, and then we move into this five step process. And one of the things about the five step process is that it actually taps into the neuroscience of how your brain naturally behaves and how it connects dots. So the first step of the process is observation. The most highly innovative thinkers, dot connectors, are all highly observant. And we discount a lot of, a lot of that observation because um, we're busy, we have things to do, it's time consuming, it seems, you know, it kind of seems ridiculous, but it's the simplicity. Of really honing your observation skills that kicks this all off, because if you're going to connect the dots and come up with these ideas, you have to have a lot of dots to connect. And the more experiences that you have and the more observations that you do, and the more that you are self-aware of what's going on around you and the responses that you have to all of these situations, there's more dots that you connect. And the second, so that's the first step is, is to become a true and conscious observer of the world around you. The next step is to distill what you've observed into something that has patterns because your brain is always looking for context. And it's interesting when I have people keep an observation journal of all of these things they observe. And like, for instance, I'll sit in an airport for an hour, you know, waiting for somebody to arrive and just write all of these things down. And the more you observe, the more detail you start to observe. And so as you move from observation into distill, what happens is that because you have all of these things that you've observed, your brain has a lot of material to work with to connect the dots into patterns. And most of the time those patterns are really nonsensical. You know, it's uh, like one of the examples that I talk about is sitting in a coffee shop and one of the patterns that came to mind was just icky things. You know, it was poopy diapers, it was burnt coffee, it was, you know, you know trash on the floor and, and, and things like that. And it may seem like it doesn't have any rhyme or reason, but again, your brain's going to go where your brain's going to go, and and let it do that. Now, the third step of the process is understanding how to relate the pattern that you distilled into the work that you do, and that's where we, if you start to think of your work as in, you know, take the example of the icky things, and it could be something as simple as how might we be delivering icky experiences, icky communication, icky whatever it is, without even realizing it. And that right there jogs your mind through a pattern interrupt, because those aren't questions that teams typically ask about the work that they do. And then you move into the fourth step, which is generate, actually generating the ideas. and. The generation comes from understanding how to start to answer that question. You know, how might we be doing icky things and not realize it and looking at solving that problem. And that's where new, um, a fresh perspective on the ideas that you generate start to come about. And so you don't end up just copying and pasting what another brand is doing. You don't end up just taking something that you've always done and, you know, redressing it. And essentially it's the same thing. And then from generate, you have to move into pitch and it doesn't matter how great the idea is a bad pitch kills great ideas. And when we're looking to instill context into the mind of the person that we're pitching the idea to whether that's a teammate, whether that's a boss, whether it's a client, whoever it could be. Is that we need to be able to again connect the dots for where we had inspiration for this idea. What this idea means, you know, going back to distilling it into patterns, relating it into the work that we're doing, how it inspired this idea, because a pitch is really a story of the journey of an idea. And as long as people have context for how all of these dots connect, all of a a sudden something, you know, ridiculous and, and seemingly completely unrelated to your company or the work that you're doing has complete relevance. But what typically happens in a company when we need a new idea is that, you know, we all get together on a Zoom call or in a conference room and, and we start brainstorming ideas. But what typically happens is that we say, you know, everybody throw out your ideas because there's no such thing as a bad idea. And I know you and I have all seen some really horrible ideas. that Oh, come yes. Up. Yeah. And, and it sucks the life out of people. And the work that comes out isn't inspired. It's not different nobody believes it's actually going to, you know, happen or change anything and so there's no enthusiasm or passion around the idea that's pitched but when you get to the generate process but you've front end loaded it by being more observant to the world around you distilling it into patterns and relating those patterns into the work that you do then the whole mindset that you have when you get to the generate state state is completely different and and that ends up bringing about one more ideas that are better quality ideas so that when you go to pitch an idea, you have much better material from which to choose. And should that one idea first idea that you pitch not fall through or you know, not move forward, you have a great portfolio of other ideas right there at the ready to work on.
0: So I I, I liked uh, how you described that. And it it's kind of pulls together for an individual this notion of driving it and of course in your book, amongst other things which made me you know laugh certainly internally were those examples of those shitty types of situations, bosses that kill creativity and and you know the, the horribleness of the corporate structure. One of the things that is interesting about innovation, uh, a friend of mine wrote a book, about values in corporations. And in his book, he um, did a repertory of how many companies in in many countries have values and what those values are. And it turns out that France has uh, indexes for the highest number of companies that put in their top three values innovation. So of course, everyone thinks they're innovative, you know? I'm the best. And, and it turns out that they're not all the best. And, and I, I equated that innovation concept more around the nobility of an engineering mindset to be able to say, I did something new. And I think that's sort of what underpins somehow that's that the nobility, the the, the idea of doing new things for progress. But as we know, it's not always the case. One of the things that I wanted to ask you for clarity's sake, just because it's still kind of sticky, not icky um, in my mind, is the difference between creativity and innovation.
1: And it's, it's a great question, Mentor, because I think many times we confuse the two or we don't give creativity its due place in the innovation process. And there's a lot about creativity that we um we agree of we agree on you know it is the more inspired type of work it is something that pushes the envelope but many times creativity isn't enough to make a business impact but i don't believe you can have innovation without having creativity and, and creativity is that front part of moving into innovation and looking at the at the difference between where you are now and the possibility of of where you can be. And um, if we look at these two from a business perspective, oftentimes we need to consider creativity almost that lost leader. We need to get people going and moving and doing and thinking a little different so they can get into that more critical innovative thinking. But I think many people discount the application of creativity, but they think that innovation is a have have to have. Creativity is a nice-to-have, but innovation is, is a have-to-have. Have. But you can't have true innovation without creativity. And I see innovation as taking creativity and, and moving it to that next level of, of implementation and, and thinking and how we approach how we do business.
0: When we talk about how in corporate cultures, for, for having worked in a very new, creative, innovative company, at least from the outside, L'Oreal, um, one can say that oftentimes culture is the killer of creativity or at least how it de facto becomes it seems easier to kill creativity than it is to create or to sorry to destroy creativity than it is to destroy innovation because creativity is sort of this oh artistic thing and weird shit thinking you know out of the box kind of random stuff you know, like the kid can just come out of the blue and say something. Whereas innovators, you know, we're much more rational. You know, it's much more elegant, the, the, the messiness of creativity and, and, and really speaks. And I, I really enjoyed those archetypes that you talked about in the team. It strikes me in corporations in particular, our inability to want to hire creative style people. I mean, you can do that within the, the artistic department, the direct, you know, your creative team. And of course, there'll be creatives. However, in general, you know, less in finance. Uh, ooh, creativity. Hmm. Enron. Um But in, <laughs> well, in general. Know you
1: want to be a creative numbers person.
0: <laughs> exactly, right. You don't want too many. It's just not a, a, a title we, we give a lot of value to, it seems, in so many corporate spaces. Or if we do... We kill it as quickly as it comes in.
1: And I think the 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 reason there is the perception of creativity that it's it's hard to understand. It's like you said, it's something that's left to a specific part of the marketing department. You know, even within the marketing department, you you'll hear people say, oh, that's the creative group. You know, and, and somehow it's this impression that the creatives are like herding cats and they're not really real, or they don't have touch, you know, no touch with the reality of business and what has to be done. And it's, it's too bad, because there is a lot of overlap between creative thinking and and innovative thinking. And I think the one thing that gets missed in both of these is the discipline of critical thinking and being able to really evaluate what do we have before us what's the meaning in it and where do we go from here and it it is that impression that in an innovator or innovation is much more practical and, and pragmatic but i also think that that is the downfall of the term innovation is that we think it has to be complex cumbersome, expensive, time consuming, and it involves a lot of flow charts and, and matrices and, and things like that. And I feel that what innovation is missed that creativity brings is a simplicity and an almost um instantaneous application of what the opportunity is and how that type of thinking can help.
0: Yeah, with leaps of faith in there. Your um we have a mutual friend David Burse who is a high creative spirit, and he participated, I believe, with you in the Fast Forward Files, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how we need to think differently. In, in the things that block, because obviously my real center of interest is in big corporates. And, and how, do, how do you make innovation happen there? It's very different when you're an entrepreneur, an individual, you know, or a couple of people. It's it, uh, It's not necessarily easier, but it's certainly very different than when you're, when you're doing it with thousands of people. And you talk about these three things that block innovation from happening. And, and the way I, I picked them up is overcomplication. It's something that others do and we don't know how. It's not, I mean, we know how to do. Uh, the, the one that I felt, uh, and, and obviously you do cover it in different ways, but the one that sort of sl- uh, screamed at me was not invented here. And in my my lifetime in corporate, within the company, if if the boss didn't invent it or the department or the other subsidiary doesn't feel that they own it, it it, there's always a a rejection component to it. Much less if it comes from another country, you know. Well, what do they know about my business?
1: (laughs) You know that's that's so true, and that mindset that's triggered about you know that wasn't invented here that's not how we do things here you know that's not what we sell that's all of these excuses um it's something that I call brand detachment disorder and brand detachment disorder is this tendency to dismiss the relevancy of another product another experience another idea because companies and the people who lead them think that what they sell is different or unique and I'm, I know that you've seen that over and over again and, and that's where we get to things like that's not how we do things here or you know, like you said, what do they know about our business. But what I found in the research is that the successful innovators are able to look at this other situation and understand the essence behind what made it successful and then transplant that into their own work, for example. Um, the BMW iDrive system—they took inspiration from a video game. Now, there's, you know, those are pretty different industries: video game and high-performance vehicles. But yet, they were able to observe what worked in the video industry, distill it into a pattern, relate those patterns into their own work, and then start generating ideas that they pitched in. In this situation, were very successful. Uh, McDonald's did the same thing with their drive-through layout. They patterned it after a Formula 1 pit stop. And there's lots of, you know, lots of examples of of situations like this. And I think when corporate cultures aren't curious enough to start to look into these other successful examples or ideas and understand what they can learn from them, that's when they start to create a gap between where they are and the opportunity that's there. And the larger that gap is between where they are and the opportunity that's there, the greater the opportunity for somebody else to come in and disrupt them. And we've seen this in um, a lot of different a lot of different industries. I mean I think Uber and the taxi industry is probably one of the most prevalent. You know, they they said things like apps that, that doesn't apply to us. That's not what we do you know, smartphones, you know, anything on demand. And, and so in all of these different examples that taxis absolutely had the chance to take advantage of and observe what was going on, distill it into patterns, relate those patterns in their work and and come up with new ideas, they miss the opportunity. And and that's what happened. And it's the, the opportunity is in that gap between where companies are and and where the opportunity starts to lie. And what happens when companies don't take advantage of those things and say things like that wasn't invented here, you know, it's outside of our industry, it's not how we do things, is that they really expose their underbelly to a lot of risk. And I think we've seen that with companies in this last year who previously said, digital transformation isn't a big priority, you know it's it's not what our industry does that's not how we deliver things that's not how we sell and all of those other excuses. Yet here we are and company you know for some companies who have been struggling to try and you know get a foot going forward on digital transformation for the last five years all of a sudden we're able to do it in five weeks, but it shouldn't if if you're truly a, a company that cares about serving your customers and being that leading edge innovative company by um, behavior, not just by a value on a wall, then you're constantly looking for how you can iterate what you're doing. And I think a lot of, especially engineering driven companies, they perceive innovation as what's actually either invention or incremental product improvement. And those are very different from true innovation that's infused as a mindset throughout the entire culture of a company.
0: Yeah, at L'Oreal, we used to pride ourselves in being able to come up with a new way of saying new. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, but this one comes with a very different fragrance. It's got more pomegranate, don't you see? Um, (laughs) So in in, in making innovation happen in, in big business, one of the areas that is... Uh, let's say I think a, a limiting aspect in in reality uh, is the governance model and the ownership structure. Mm-hmm. If you have a private equity on your ass and you need to come up with you know the big sale in three years, you, you end up sort of being short term focused and so so obsessed with the short term results that your ability to have that naivete. To go attend, like you wrote about, a Zappos conference, and you know you have your BDD, your uh, brand uh, dislocation. I can't remember the term. Brand um, detachment
1: disorder. Yeah. Yeah,
0: there you are, the BDD. Um, when you you know that's 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 B to C. I'm B 2 B, or you know that's a video game. I'm I'm doing cars, much more serious, really, and it does speak to having that, that more diverse mindset and and also this naivete that children have about saying, huh well, that's interesting, maybe I could do that over here. But bringing that translation in there, it does taking, I mean, it, aside from the the skill, the mindset, it does take a little bit of time to digest, find those patterns and and do that. So I was wondering, and I just wanna add one more thing you talk about in your book about um, this chap, Ben Coleman, who was in the Navy, and and you write how he had to, he felt the need to move to McKinsey because he didn't have the freedom to do what he wanted to do in the Navy. And I was wondering what your relationship or the way, the, 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 voice inside Carla Johnson's mind that talks about freedom and innovation.
1: For me, the, the ability to, um, I guess, to think about freedom within innovation is to have that space for trial and error. And I think that was what made Ben so successful when he was in that particular area of the Navy, is that he reported to someone who said, "Let's trial things," and in his superior officer at the time said, "You know, if it doesn't work out, we don't lose anything. You know, we're not, you know, we don't have tremendous money, or you know, we're not under a, a national threat or things like this." He said, "So try try these things. If it works out, great." If it doesn't, we just move on and and try something else. And I think many times what holds back that freedom in innovation is that the people we're reporting to or waiting for permission to move forward with something are looking for it um, with great efficiency and absolute effectiveness. And you can't have efficiency and innovation at the same time because they're just, they're just counterproductive, you, you need to have the space and the freedom to be inefficient with ideas in order to test them. And I believe what worked so well with Ben is that he had that that space and that freedom. And he went and collected this group of, um, you know, as he called them, like um, black sheep thinkers, or, you know, people who were lone wolves and, and a, a little bit of the troublemakers. And that was one of the reasons that I got into the archetypes of innovators is because we have this perception of what um, an innovator can be. And in his situation, he was specifically looking for people that I define as as provocateurs, people who are always pushing the status quo and always saying, why do we do this? How come we can't do it better? And, And those sorts of things. And I think in a culture like the Navy, and you want to make change, you need to really seek out those kind of people. But I think in other environments, Sometimes the freedom comes from having the ability to tell a story of change and to connect the dots between what you've always done in the past, the future that you want to go to, and how an idea bridges that, that gap in between. And with, with freedom also comes the ability to look at an idea or a potential for an innovation um, innovative idea from from many different perspectives, and when you start to facilitate those conversations between the different kind of innovators, you know the the provocateurs who are who are always pushing the status quo, the strategists who know how to you know develop a strategy, plan and execute it, the culture shapers who can tell the story of change, the psychologists who have empathy for the people who will be essentially consumers of the idea, and the and the collaborators who know how to build those relationships across teams and the orchestrators who are those um, very savvy p- political type people within, within a company, when you have a team that understands the need for all of these different natural abilities, it gives you a lot of freedom because you're able to navigate those waters within an organization and understand how to counteract some of those natural barriers. Those those um, default responses like, that's not how we do things here. We don't have the time, we don't have the money, and especially under pressure. If you are able to tell the story of a need and a benefit, then you're going to start to get traction for that for that idea. And the more that others are able to contribute to an idea, the greater ownership that they have and a feeling of having skin in the game and they want to see that idea succeed.
0: Yeah, like the not invented here thing dissipates when they feel like they own it. When I was listening to you, or as you're obviously reading the book as well, and thinking about these archetypes, uh, I have natural proclivities. We all have some areas of strength and some less less good. And I was thinking, which one is actually the hardest? And and certainly the idea of the the politically savvy one is a difficult one if you don't have that within you as a as a style. You're not going to invent it quickly and. The, the integrators, the collaborators, that's a sort of more of a social style. I kept on getting fixated on, on this storytelling idea, the, the the people who can pitch the idea. Because at some level, you come up with the greatest idea, but you don't present it in the right context. You don't swoon people with the appeal of this mega thought, this big jump. That storytelling component can be fatal if you don't have it, when you're trying to propose it and seduce more people to want to own it.
1: Absolutely. And and I think that's why um, the, the bad pitches kill even the best of ideas. And you need to have that culture shaper, that person who's able to tell the story and able to string together a longer narrative over an extended period of time. Because even like you said, in um, companies that are more short-term driven, we have to be able to tell that story of an idea immediately right now. And and right now might be this afternoon for um, a board meeting, but to be able to tell that story in the right now context, but still paint the picture of what's possible in the future, that's really important. And that's a skill that not everybody has. And I think like for me as a provocateur, it's one of those things that I need to stop and take a deep breath and, and get out of that that head place that I get in about let's come on, let's go, let's go, let's push it, push it, push it and instead say, you know lots of times the idea people are at the head of the comments and our one of our main responsibilities as innovators is that we have to bring the entire rest of the organization along for the ride and unless, You can develop that you know skill a little bit more than what you have then you absolutely need those culture shapers who can understand how to tell that story in many different situations under different time frames because i think it can be just as hard to tell the story in the very short term as it is in the long term to keep people's interest for a long period of time and for them to understand their character role in this story of change and that's why it matters so much to, to have those culture shapers because they're able to get people excited about what's happening right now and make sure that every single day they get excited about showing up for work. They understand their place in that story of an idea in, in change or whatever you're looking to roll out and you keep people engaged and you know, you're know you constantly constantly reminding them you know, what story are we in? What place are we in in that story? And what's your character role? Because you think about in any, you know, movie, in any um, book, or, you know, any audio thing that you listen to about a story, if you took everybody on a team and dropped them into that story at a different time, or didn't even tell them what story that they're in, there's no context and they think this is ridiculous. It's chaos. It doesn't matter. I don't know why we're here. So that's one of the beauties and the power that culture shapers bring to innovation is that they remind everybody, what story are we in? What place are we in in this story? And you know, where are we going with the story and what's everybody's role? And I think that's it's a really important aspect of innovation that often isn't thought about or given credit to.
0: So one of the areas of, of innovation for having looked at this topic like you for many years, many companies tend to go to incubators or, or create an innovation cell, or alternatively, buy an innovative company and or an aqua hire, and, and or by osmosis, it'll happen. <laughs> can these work? And under what circumstances can those type of external, extrinsic innovation cells work? Or do you prescribe a, you know, innovation everywhere thought as the best or most effective over time?
1: With each of these examples that you talk about, the main thing that the acquiring company is looking for is momentum. And that's often what's lost in big companies is that as they grew and scaled, and put processes and efficiencies into place, they killed passion and momentum. And now I'm not saying that that's 100% bad, because oftentimes, you absolutely need that in in order to scale and get to the place where you want to be. But what happens is that they look to bring in an outside you know smaller company more innovative faster moving faster growing company to make up or or create their own innovation lab or hub to make up for what they don't have as a culture and an interesting statistic that i came across when i was doing research is that 90% of innovation in an organization happens outside of traditional product and service line development yet 75% of a corporate budget is invested in that 10%. So if companies are actually wanting to become more innovative, not just incremental improvement of a product or service, which is what happens with most innovation, then they truly do need to instill innovation as a mindset across the organization and also a skill set. Because if you are looking to create a company that is truly innovative, you have to reverse engineer it and start with individual people. Because it's the competency with innovation skills of individual people that determines whether or not a team will be innovative. And it's the ability of teams in mass within a company that determines whether or not that actual company will become innovative. And so you can be a company and acquire the most innovative startup hub, lab, or whatever But unless you have the overall corporate ecosystem to nurture that acquisition, to make sure that you feed it, that you give it the freedom and and the room to do what it wants to do and not um, and not kill it with structure and process, then it doesn't matter. And that's where if you're going to invite something innovative into your culture, you have to make sure that you already have an ecosystem that supports its survival Mm -hmm. and one of the interesting things that i've seen this last year during the the pandemic and companies that struggle is that they've shut down those innovation labs and hubs within their companies so that sends a message that it's not a vital critical part of their business it's excess Mm -hmm. and and when you have pointed to one team as the idea team or the innovators and then you kill it the message that you're sending is that innovation isn't actually important and it doesn't matter if that's one of your values and i think that's that's also a a mistake that companies make is that they say innovation is our value however innovation is really the outcome of other things that allow it to happen
0: as you were talking about that statistic i was envisioning the 10 percent and the amount of time i spend in the shower where the greatest ideas happen, and then all of a sudden Absolutely. I said, "Well, why don't you just, why don't we just invent, invest in everybody should have a shower on site at work? Um, of you probably have to have towels, or soap, and a few other things. Very, very um,
1: clean environment,
0: right? Yeah. There you, go. Um, you're, you're, you have so many other things I wanted to discuss. I, I loved some of the ideas you brought in there, like the bullet time add into it, which came up with the empathy generator. I I loved what um, you quoted uh, the Gusto CEO, Josh Reeves, said about values. Be bold and opinionated with your values, especially when you're hiring. Last thing I do want to talk about, though, is about purpose. You spend a good amount of time talking about purpose. And through my lens, purpose is generally the big solution for me. Because when you talk about tying people together, bringing in an incubator, or an aqua hire if you have a a de facto purpose and and it's real and felt and understood. Uh, You write about it in the book about this report um, where purpose, not profit, is the key to success, especially in a turbulent global economy. But I wanted you to to talk about what is actually your definition of purpose, because you, you write also about, in the report, it being a broad definition is what's needed. And so I was wondering how you define purpose and why purpose is so presumably key to innovation as well.
1: Absolutely. And and I define purpose as the difference that you're trying to make in the lives of your customer. And it's never about the product or service that you sell. But one of the reasons that purpose is so critical is because profit is important. And you, you know, like as a, if you report to a board of directors, of course, one thing that matters most to them is profit of the organization. And if we're looking at how do we make sure that everybody is engaged and contributing to the company, we see research from companies like Gallup that says the level of emotional disengagement of employees across the board, just in the US, is costing companies four to five hundred billion. Billion, with a B, billion dollars a year. And it's because they show up every day and they don't have a reason for being there beyond, I'm processing payables, I'm, you know, connecting people's networks, I'm, you know, working on this campaign. And the ability to have a bigger North Star, the reason why we're actually there, is something that brings inspiration to every employee's work, whether it's, um, you know, whatever it is across the company. And they start to see that while my role is in finance, what I am doing is facilitating my company to be able to make a difference in the lives of their customers. And when they start to understand this, this message of purpose, and it changes the perception of their work in their mind to something that has a bigger reason for why they show up the the research that I've read and the experience I've had in developing brand purposes for companies is that it now triggers something in their brain and they say, well, actually, if if what we're trying to do is help our customers do X, I've now got an idea for the little piece of work that I do and how we can start to make that better. For example, one of the stories that I talk about is a company named Park Mobile, and they're a software company in Atlanta, Georgia that has an app for for parking in there. Um, One of the things that they do is they shut down for a week twice a year and they focus on innovation only. And they open this up to the entire company. And now understanding the purpose of, of their company, understanding the purpose of this innovation week has gotten people in all departments across the company to be extremely inspired to think about the work that they do differently and there was a woman in finance who, during one of the weeks of innovation, she wrote a program to automate a, a process that previously took her and her team 40 hours a month, an entire week a month to do. And now they're able to do it in about you know 20 minutes. So she saved 39 hours and 40 minutes. And it's not that doesn't mean you need fewer people. It means you have freed people up from monotonous work so that they can now contribute in more strategic ways the way that their company makes a difference in the lives of their customers, you know, to to contribute to to the work and the bigger picture and the impact that they're trying to have. And I think without purpose, what you have is a lot of disconnected departments. And even within those departments, you have people with fragmented priorities. But with purpose, you're able to lower the walls between silos because everybody is working toward that same outcome. And, And that. When you have everybody marching in the same direction, toward the same outcome, you start to create an incredibly powerful organization.
0: I love it. Um, So, Carla, there are so many things in the book which we didn't get a chance to touch on, but that's why people have to go get it. Uh, The other one I wanted to give a shout out to was the internal trade show that you talked about at PayPal. There are lots of great ideas in the book, how can somebody, uh, of course, get this book, other books, follow you, track you down, connect with you? What would be your preferred way, Carla?
1: You know, um, if you go to my website, carla with a c johnson. There's no M. That's you the mean, hub you mean like where-
0: Colorado.co exactly. Colorado. Exactly, Co
1: for Colorado. That's the hub of where everything is, and you can see all of the books that I've written. You can also sign up for my weekly newsletter that focuses on innovation and everything that you and I have, have talked about today, Mentor. Um, I always like when people um, share the episodes on LinkedIn or someplace else and, and give us a shout out. And I always love it when people reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn as well.
0: All right, beautiful. Thank you very much, Carla. Good luck on your mission to get 1 million people to become innovative thinkers by 2025. Carla Johnson, thanks and see you soon, I hope. I have been delighted to be here,
1: Mentor. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Mentor Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on Mentordial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: We all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me Precipitating the danger To feel free Trust in my reason And let me show you why